Welcome to this episode of Come Follow Me, A Disciple's Journey. This episode, uh, we'll cover 3 Nephi, chapter 27. So to begin, let's just kind of re- catch you back up where we are. Christ has been teaching in chapter 26. Recall that he uh, expounded all things from the beginning. This is the chapter that the he, the babes, the kids, the ch- little children, little children's mouths were opened, and they spoke marvelous things. And the people in the church begin to have all things in common, and uh, people, the gospel is being spread. People are starting to be baptized in the name of Christ, the way that He came and showed them to do that in Third Nephi chapter eleven. So. Then we have chapter 27 start, and it starts with the disciples of Jesus were journeying and preaching, so they're, they've now gone out. They've now, they're now messengers going out to share what they've uh, both heard and seen, and they're baptizing, and they were gathered together in unity and uh, in mighty prayer and fasting, and... Uh, Elder Joseph B. Worthen talked about fasting or fasting and prayer and the power that comes when when uniting those two principles together. He said, fasting coupled with mighty prayer is powerful. It can be filled, it can fill our minds with the revelations of the Spirit. It can strengthen us against times of temptation. Fasting and prayer can develop within us courage and confidence. It can strengthen our character, it can build our self-restraint and discipline. Often when we fast, our righteous prayers and petitions have greater power. Fasting is in the proper spirit and in the Lord's way will energize us spiritually, strengthen our self-discipline, fill our homes with peace, lighten our hearts with joy, fortify us with against temptation, and prepare us for times of adversity and open the windows of heaven. There's a long list of blessings that can come from fasting and prayer together. I can tell you that I know from my own experience that fasting has done can do at least two things because I've. I've seen these two things in my life, and that is bring great things to pass uh, and bring miracles to pass. And it can also uh, bring a clarity that with, with and, and a kind of clarity that comes only from the spirit and from a, a, a peace that the spirit brings. I'm not going to say that every time I fasted for something that, that that some miracle has happened and that I was completely delivered and that day or that week things just suddenly changed. But what I will say is that every time I have fasted, whether that's on fast Sunday or for a special fast for something else, for a loved one or for myself, what I do know is that every time I've done that, I've gotten clarity and peace from the Spirit that's let me know that no matter what happens, whether whether a, a miracle happens or not, that the Lord is mindful of me and that He will carry me through the hardship and th- or, or trial that I am fasting about or trying to overcome. Uh, you know, several instances of fasting come to my mind. Like I said, I have, I have, I have witnessed... Miracles. There have been times, and uh, I'm an I'm an I am an entrepreneur, uh, a partner and owner in multiple businesses. It's great. It's awesome, but it also brings a lot of stress when you're responsible for other people's livelihoods. And I have seen it just this year alone, and in recent history, memory, within the last even thirty days, 
when I have fasted for some things that we were facing that could potentially harm my family's well-being and those who rely on us. I saw things happen and stars align, quote-unquote, and all the little things that needed to happen start to come together in rapid succession. Things that had we had been waiting for for months, even in, even in some cases longer, happened that week that I decided, you know what, I need to fast about these things specifically. But I will say the time, one time that does definitely comes to my mind uh, most powerfully uh, in terms of my, of my own experience with fasting and prayer uh, is about my second born son. Uh, he was born with some special needs, was in the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU, uh, for several months when he was first born. Uh, not several months, sorry. It was just over a month. But I, it's, we, I mean, if you've ever had a child in the NICU, you can say that you've spent a year there one month. I mean, it time drags on there. So it was, it, he was there for just over a month. Uh, we were living in St. George, Utah at the time. And unbeknownst to us at the time, uh, when, it, when it happened, our ward uh, fasted and prayed. Uh, for him. And although, I could, like I said, it felt like we were there forever, uh, between that fast and that those prayers and priesthood blessings, uh, that kid, that kid got out of there. That's through that. Is, those are, that is the reason why. That's the reason why we have a six year old who loves life and is a normal kid and is moody and, and whiny, but also a great son and a great brother and uh, loves to learn. That's the reason we have him. There were miracles that happened every single day that I know came from that time of, of fasting and prayer. When a ward family came together and united their faith. So, let's get off of verse 1 now. Fasting and prayer. The disciples fast and pray. And what? what and so Jesus then shows himself unto them. They needed a manifestation from him again. And fasting and prayer brought him back to their presence. And I don't doubt that the same thing happens in our day when... The Quorum of the Twelve and the, and the First Presidency need specific guidance and direction. And he, so Christ comes and he says, what do you want me to give you? What do you, what do you need? And they say, look, we're going out and we're teaching, but we're, what are we supposed to call this church? You know, bef- before we had this law, the law of Moses, but now it's, that's gone. And so what are we, what are we calling this? And Christ says, man, kind of confused why you'd have that question, but okay, that's, no contention over this point. Whose church is it? It's my church. It needs to be called after my name. Huh, that's weird. Where else have we heard this recently? Uh, October, or yeah, October 2018. President Nelson, the correct name of the church. He said, Jesus directed us to call the church by his name because it is his church filled with his power. Recently, I've 
in the in the podcast, I've been talking to you all about section one fifteen of the Doctrine and Covenants. He said, "It says, for thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Verily, I say unto you all, arise and shine forth, that thy light may be a standard for the nations, and that the gathering together upon the land of Zion and upon her stakes may be for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from a, and from wrath when it shall be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth." Power. There is power in the name of the church because there is power in Christ. His power. The atoning power of Jesus Christ. His might and his mercy and his grace. It flows from him. It flows through everything that is associated with him, including his name. And importantly, what do we take upon us, begin to take upon us when we are baptized and make covenants at uh, at the time of baptism? We take upon us his name. We begin to take upon us his name. What do we testify and covenant that we are willing to take upon us when we take the sacrament every week? His name. What do we continue taking upon us when we go and make covenants in the temple? In the temple, His name. There is power in his name. When we uh, were commanded to not take his name in vain, and oftentimes, and rightfully so, that is... Uh, associated with cursing and and uh, you know that type of blasphemy, blasphemy. I think, and I would posit and suggest to you all that that also means making those covenants of taking that we're going to take upon His name, and then breaking those covenants. We took His name in vain; it was for nothing. To not take His name in vain means to make covenants at baptism, make covenants every week at sacrament. Make covenants in the temple and keep those covenants. That's what it means to take upon his name with no vain. And not in vain, I should say. There is a power in his name. What name by which what is the name by which we shall be saved? And there is no other name under heaven? His name. Right? His name. It's not Jarrett Webster or some other your name, insert your name. The power comes from his name and us taking upon us his name. It comes from us becoming the children of Christ, becoming part of his covenant family. And you go back to section 115, it talks about the power of the name and then talks about becoming a defense and a refuge from the storm. But it's also bound together with what? The gathering of Israel. What is the gathering of Israel? It's as President Nelson has just told us this last conference, it's the gathering of those who are willing to have let the Lord prevail in their life. Or in other words, it is a gathering of those who are willing to make covenants. And those who make covenants are what? Are who? The children of Christ. It is a gathering of his family and his family name. The name is important. Uh, President Ballard, then Elder Ballard, said, Because the full name of the church is so important, I echo the revelations from the scriptures, the First Presidency's instructions in letters of 1982 and 2001, and the words of other apostles who have encouraged the members of the church to uphold and teach the world that the church is known by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the name by which the Lord will call us at the last day. It is the name by which his church will be distinguished from all others. And to echo that point that uh, it, is, it is the name that's going to distinguish us from the world. Uh, knowing that name and knowing the power by which we act comes is important. In the book of Acts, uh, Peter and James and John use the name of Jesus Christ to go around healing people. 
And that's what gets them in trouble is that they're using their healing and uh, performing miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. They go before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin says, oh, look, you can perform miracles. We We don't have any problem with that, but you can't do it in the name of Jesus. Peter and the other apostles refused to reject the name of Christ. They said, quote, we will obey God rather than man knowing and using the Lord's name was that important to them. And so it should be for us. And so it should be in the name of the church. And when we tell other people what church we belong to. And so to kind of just put a cap on that discussion, one more quote from president Nelson from that October, 2018 uh, talk I already mentioned. Thus the name of the church is not negotiable. When the savior clearly states what the name of the church should be, and even precedes his declaration with, thus shall my church be called, he is serious. And if we allow nicknames to be used or adopt, or even sponsor those nicknames ourselves, he is offended. Elder Hales, uh, in talking about taking upon us the name of Christ, when we are baptized, we take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. Taking upon us his name is one of the most significant experiences we have in life. Yet sometimes we pass through that experience without having a full understanding. How many of our children, how many of us really understand that when we were baptized, we took upon us not only the name of Christ, but also the law of obedience. Each week in sacrament meeting, we promise to remember the atoning sacrifice of our Savior as we renew our baptismal covenant. We promise to do as the Savior did and to be obedient to the Father and always keep his commandments. The blessing we receive in return is always to have his spirit to be with us. The next uh, thing I want to talk about here in 3 Nephi 27 starts in... Well, actually, verse 11. Verse 11 is one of my favorite verses to go to and turn to because uh, it's it's kind of a reassuring verse as you look around the world and what we see today. Sometimes it's easy to think that, hey, look, I'm keeping the commandments. Why am I not happy? Why is this so hard? Okay, and there's a, there's a whole line of thought that we can go down with the, about that. That Well, look, uh, I think... Uh, I think Matthew Holland, this last call, or Elder Holland, Matthew, Elder Matthew Holland, this last conference talked about this quite beautifully. But um, there's a whole line of things we can go down that, that. But what I want to focus on is it's easy to think that, and then to look around the world and say, look at all these other people who aren't living the commandments. Look how much money they have and wealth, and look how happy they are. Even it seems like their their life is so easy. Look at they're getting all the things that they want. They're not doesn't they're not getting punished for not keeping the commandments of God. Well, Christ says. But if it not be built upon my gospel and is built upon the works of men or upon the works of the devil, verily I say unto you, they have joy in their works for a season. And by and by the end cometh and they are hewn down and cast into the fire and from whence there is no return. The, this stands out to me because it uses the word joy. Christ uses the word joy saying, if you're not built upon my gospel, if your life, if your church, if if your foundation is not upon me, all right, you might have... you. I say unto you, they have joy in the works of for us in their works for a season. They will joy, not just like happiness. Like he uses the word joy for a reason here. But he says, and by and by the end cometh, and they are hewn down and cast into fire. There, there is a a natural consequence for their actions and for our and for the actions. So there's a natural consequence for obedience and disobedience. Let's just let's say that. And. By and by, the end cometh. And I think of President Oak's talk uh, a few conferences back, where he said, his, I think it's entitled, Where Will This Lead? 
And that's what we have to ask ourselves is where will our actions lead? It might, it might not be very clear at first because sometimes it looks like, oh, this is, look at joyful. It's joy. Yay. But where will it not only lead, but where will it end is the question we need to ask. Moving on, verse 13 through 21. This is this is why really these these verses are the why this chapter is my favorite, one of my favorite chapters. Because Christ says this. He says, Behold, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you. What is he about to say? Because what he's about to say seems pretty important because he's about to say, Hey, this is my gospel. And if you jump down to verse 21, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. And you kind of get these bookends, okay? You got, he's going to say, this is my gospel. And now in verse 21, he's saying, what I just told you is my gospel. What does he say, what does he say in verses 13 through 21 that is his gospel? Well, let's talk about it. But before we do, let's uh, read what Elder Maxwell said about these specific verses. He said, there is in the Book of Mormon a statement in which the Lord says, behold, this is the gospel which I have given unto you. And then he describes his gospel. It is a simple story of a world to which a Savior has been sent, whom men may accept or reject, but who is nevertheless the Messiah. That simple story is the very thing, of course, the world cannot accept. It is so simple that some may even be offended inwardly at times by the so-called simplicity of the gospel. There are those who may share some of our beliefs and values, but for whom the restoration of the gospel is a stumbling block they cannot get over the top of. But to most of mankind, what we proclaim is foolishness. The Savior himself defined his gospel as faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. He also stated that the gospel was him coming into the world to do the will of the Father to be lifted up upon the cross. All right, so we're going to break it all down now. Here we go. Verse 13, he says, this is my gospel. And what's the first thing he says? He says, that I came into the world to do the will of my Father because my Father sent me. Okay, so that's point number one. And my Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross, and that after I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me. As I have been lifted up by men, even so should the men be lifted up by the uh, by the Father. Point number two. So point number one is that he came to do the will of the Father. He came to the, to, to the world. The, the side, that the Savior, the Messiah, came to the world. Point number two is that he was going to be lifted up and crucified, and that he was crucified. Okay. And point number three is that they would that all men would stand before me to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And for this cause have I been lifted up. Therefore, according to the power of the Father, I will draw all men unto me that they may be judged according to their works. So the first three points of the gospel are that Christ came, that simple, that he suffered and died, and that all men will, because of his atoning sacrifice, be brought before God to be judged. Okay, so those are the first three points of the gospel. Now, we often think of the gospel as, and as I just read from uh, the Institute Manual and from President or from Elder Maxwell, that the Savior defined his gospel as faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost, and endurance to the end. Those five things are typically what we say. Hey, what's the gospel? Here it is. If you go look in, you know, preach my gospel under the the lesson, the lesson about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to mainly see. You're going to see it's centered around the atonement, though, right? And that's kind of the part that uh, it, these first three points of him coming, him dying, and all men will be judged. That's that's what that uh, captures. If we flip back to Alma, chapter 33. 
Uh, remember that in verse 32 of Alma, this is the faith chapter and, and the plant the word and the word is like a seed. Um, and so Alma's talking and saying, this is what you got to do. You got to plant it. You got to take care of it. And it'll start to grow. It'll be delicious to you and swell. And in chapter 33, the people are saying, well, what am I supposed to plant? What word am I supposed to, to plant? Uh, and so in verse 22, Alma chapter 33, verse 22, he says, if so, woe shall come unto you. But if not, so then cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God. Okay, so believe in the Son of God, that he will come to redeem his people, that he shall suffer and die for their sins, that he will rise again in the and the dead, uh, he will rise again from the dead, which shall bring to pass the resurrection, that all men shall stand before him to be judged the last and judgment day according to the works, their works. Did you see the similarities? What did he say? He's don't cast it away, and if you believe, what are you supposed to believe? Believe that he will come, okay? So point number one from 35 was that he came. What else are you supposed to believe? That he will suffer and die to atone for the sin, their sins. Okay, that's point number two. Okay. And then point number three was that he would rise again and bring to pass the resurrection that all men shall stand before him to be judged the last day. Those three things. The word that Alma wanted those people, the Zoramites, to plant in their little hearts was the gospel. Those three points of the gospel. Now, how do these other five points, faith, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost enduring to the end, how does that relate to what Alma was teaching back in, in those chapters? That's how you cultivate it. You plant those three things. You plant the faith in Jesus Christ that he came, that he atoned for the sins of the world, that he was resurrected, and that we will all be resurrected and judged. If you those, That's what you need to have faith in. That's where, that's where the faith comes in. You plant those three doctrines, those three points of the gospel in your heart, and you cultivate it with faith and with repentance and with baptism and with receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost and with enduring to the end, you cultivate it. And what is it, what's going to grow up out of your heart? The truthfulness of those doctrines. Your faith and your repentance and your works, that doesn't do anything. That and This is how faith and works, this is another way in which we can look at this faith, the faith, the quote-unquote faith works argument. The faith, the repentance, the baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, the enduring to the end did nothing if the faith wasn't founded in Christ, that he came, that he atoned, that he resurrected, and that we will all be resurrected and judged. It's him. That, that's where the power comes from. But our part is to cultivate that little seed. Okay? So as we go on through Third Nephi, that's what you're going to see, is that he teaches those three points, and then he says, you'll see through the verses 16 through 20, faith, repentance, Baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost and enduring to the end. And he ends up summarizing it in verses 19 and 20. He says, No unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore, nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and repentance of all their sins and their faithfulness unto the end. So right there, he's talking about faith and repentance and enduring to the end. Now he says in verse 20, great summary. And now this is the commandment. Repent all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, and that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. Now, one of my favorite quotes uh, from Lynn G. Robbins. He taught, Repentance isn't God's backup plan in the event we might fail. Repentance is his plan, knowing that we will. And in the words of Christ from verse 20, he said, Now this is the commandment. Repent all ye ends of the earth. Repentance isn't negative. Repentance is always positive. 
And it's having that attitude and having the faith in Jesus Christ and having our focus on him that will help us, as I said over and over in last week's episodes, if you listened, will refine us, the, 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 the trials that we go through in our life will refine us and not ruin us. But repentance is a part of that refining process. Repentance is part of the purification process. Repentance is is that process. Repentance is the perfection process. It's not his backup plan in case we screw up. He knows we're going to screw up. It's his plan knowing that. This is it. That is the plan. Just follow this. You're going to screw up, but do this. (laughs) And then verse 21, as I mentioned before, he says, Verily, verily, saying to you, this is my gospel. And you know the things which you must do in my church for the works which you have seen me do, that shall you do also. And then we get to the verse that I mentioned in the uh, introduction uh, episode this week. Write the works of this people. Write the things which you have seen and heard, save it be those things which are forbidden. Don't write the things that he said not to write because he specifically told them some things. But in your life, write down the spiritual experiences that you have. Write down what your faith has done for you, what repentance has done for you. For behold, out of the books which have been written and which shall be written, shall this people be judged. For by them shall their works be known unto men. Write your works, write the spiritual things that you have, because out of the books which have been written and shall be written, shall this people be judged. And then he says, to summarize and recap that he's already told us back in 35 chapter 12, and now, and know ye not that ye shall be judges of this people, according to the judgment which I shall give unto you, which shall be just. Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. Now, it is important to note, he is talking to his disciples right now, the, the 12, but shouldn't we all isn't that, isn't that to all of us as well? That we should be as even as he is? Alright, so to close out this chapter, I just want to uh, kind of close with, I guess, uh, an invitation to you this week as you study 3 Nephi 27. Look for mentions of his name in this chapter. Look for mentions of him saying, my name. So, for an example would be, uh, and now I go unto the Father, and verily I say unto you, whatsoever thing ye shall ask the Father in my name, shall be given unto you. So just look for how many times he references his name. So like saying, hey, it should be called in my name. Look for those. And the other thing I invite you to do is, uh, or two more things. I invite you to do that. Second thing is I invite you to look for the gospel in between verses 13 and 21. See what you see. See what the Spirit teaches you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the last thing is record those things. As he said, right the things which have uh, which ye have seen and heard. And as you do that, the Lord will continue to bless you and, and guide you and, and trust you with further light and knowledge. Thank you for listening uh, to this episode. Next episode, we'll cover 3 Nephi chapter 28. Hope to see you there, and we'll talk soon.